I'm also very interested in this topic myself. I went to the conference, Emotionally Healthy Leader, in April in New York. And over there, it's Pete Scazzaro, the, the author. He used to be an InterVarsity staff. You know, half of the attendees were InterVarsity people. And I just felt right at home. And so I went up there, got a chance to meet with the author. So I shake his hand and talk about our ministry. And then afterwards, I kind of went on and spoke with other people. And then there's next person who represents a huge denomination. And went up and started talking to Pete Scazzaro, the writer of Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. And he was like, yeah, in our denomination, we're really learning about this issue, about emotionally healthy spirituality. And so your book has been really great. And we've been reading this other book. It's called Becoming What God Intended. And that really helped us also. And Pete Scazzaro realized I just introduced myself as a director of Becoming What God Intended, the ministry that produced a book that you saw on the right. So he said, you know the director of that organization is right here, so you can talk to both of us. So just you know that, in fact, the ministry that I'm representing, Becoming What God Intended, also focus on this issue, and the many churches that want to develop this area is reading the same book, so we're definitely in the right company there. So why is this so important? Why is this so important? The book, Becoming What God Intended, the organization I represent is founded by David Eggman, Dr. David Eggman. He used to be the professor of Hebrews in Western Seminary, then subsequently became the vice president about 15 years ago. How did he get involved into this ministry? Because he grew up in a dysfunctional home and he struggled a lot. He, he went into the Bible. He, he got a PhD in Hebrew from Oxford all these credentials. But then he wants to find out how does it really apply to him spiritually. And he went on a self-discovery. And this is what he found. And he was eventually invited, and he doesn't to this day exactly know how he got invited, by the best university in China, Beijing University, Tsinghua University, about 10 years ago, to do a seminar on how to prevent teenagers, college students from suicide. Because they don't tell you this. In China, suicide is number two killer of young people aged 18 to 30, next to traffic accident. And the government were so worried that the best students in, in their country are, are dying because of emotional issues. So they invited this panel of scholars from Stanford, Harvard, and there is Dr. Eggman. And the year after, he got invited back, and he looked around, and he, he realized, wait a second, where did all those panel of people went? He was the only person who got invited back. And he turned around and spoke to the party secretary, people who are supposedly checking up on him and what he teaches, and said, you know I have a PhD in Hebrew, right? You know I'm a vice president from a seminary, right? And you still want me to teach here? They say, yes. Why? They said, because whatever you taught really resonated with the counselors so that when they went back and counseled the student, it really worked. So that's how actually our ministry started in China. And we continue to have this kind of training to the college students and college counselors, uh, counselors on college campuses. 
and because Dr. Eggman was a professor at Western Seminary, which is in San Jose, and he probably has hundreds of students who are of Asian descent. So I was one of his students 20 years ago. And I have to say, and as we were talking more about it, that we realize there is real deficit in the Asian American community or in Asian community about the issue of emotional health. Why is that? Why is that? I mean, if I have to go back and read and think about sort of the Chinese culture or East Asian culture, that there are a couple of really strong ideas that's embedded in Confucianism. The idea of gentleman. A real gentleman is a person that is, has his emotion under control. In fact, it quotes in the intellect that it should be still as water, as calm water. Okay, if you're an ideal gentleman, you're supposed to have all your emotions wrapped up. Another one that, that is kind of within the Confucius value is talking about the middle path, the middle way. So we don't want extremes, right? We don't want super happy. We don't want like super depression. We want to walk in the middle, right? And so there's a lot of sort of a culturally embedded ideas that really suppress our emotions in our context. And that this, that this is no wonder why if you go to the psychology department in, in Taiwan or in China or Asian American, you know, sort of anybody who studies this, that they will tell you for Asian Americans or Asians, they don't get, they don't express their depression or anxiety or, or any kind of psychological issues in terms of psychological issues. In fact, they will say, I have a headache. They, they call it psychosomatic, right? So they express itself as if it is some kind of uh, physical issues. Because in our community, we can accept you have a migraine and you miss work. But we cannot accept that you are missing work because you're depressed. And this is the reason why many Asian Americans, many Asians have ulcers, it's all stress, psychologically induced, but then they hide it behind the physical issues. So because of that, we need to really kind of examine this as Christians. And 20 years ago, as uh, Dr. Eggman was teaching me, I was sitting through his class, and I was really thinking through some of those things. I was introduced to a lot of the relevant books, and this is the second page. You can see that there are some of the books that really helps to develop, in fact, a theology of emotion. That, that you look at the God of the Bible, that there's a God that's full of emotion. That Jesus, when he sees his good friend Lazarus died, he wept. There was an emotional response. We don't have a God that sits up in heaven that is without emotion, that dishes out judgment. He is close to you. He is sitting next to you when you and I were going emotional things. And so why can we experience that? So this morning, it is very, very important that we kind of examine this issue very carefully, that we kind of come to a grip of what emotionally healthy spirituality is about. So there'll be four things that we'll be talking about. Number one, why is emotionally healthy spirituality so important? Why is it so important? Number two, 
what does it look like if you have an emotionally healthy spirituality? What would it look like in your life? What would it look like impact your spiritual life, the way that you relate to other people, the way that you discipline your kids? How do you get it? If you have a picture now, what that looks like, how do you get it? What is a process that you will align yourself to this emotionally healthy spirituality? Finally, there will be some caution that if you don't have this emotionally healthy spirituality, what would be the consequences to you? How will it impact you? So, let's start with why it is important. What is important? Three things that we want to talk about in this. Number one is that I believe if you integrate emotions into your spirituality, you will have a redefinition of what sin is. And you will see this through Scripture over and over. And that you also will have to redefine, in many, for many of us, the idea of spiritual maturity. And finally, when we integrate emotionally health, that it will shape the process of discipleship, an emphasis of, you know, a really point of emphasis. And this is super important because where you start up, many of us, we start up when we became Christian, we all, we, we want to be disciples, right? We want to become closer to Jesus. We want to be better. We want to be just people that God will accept, God will be proud of. And we have a desire to be better disciples. But if we have a, just a different assumption, you end up a different place. How many of you drive down the highway? How many of you are going to drive down to L.A. this summer? All right. You drive down the Highway 5, right? You drive, you drive, you drive. At a certain point, you know there's a split between 99 and Highway 5, Right? You know how, I mean, sometimes I'm just so tired, you just keep on driving. The next thing you know, you drove like 30 miles past that point, and you're on 99, right? Because 99 is a straight one, and you had to get off to get on Highway 5, right? This is exactly what it is like. I mean, if we don't have this emotional health integrated into your spiritual formation, into your discipleship, boy, you end up at just some really off places. All right, so... Let's get started. Matthew chapter 19, verse 16 to 22. Now a man came up to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Why do you ask me about what is good? Jesus replied, There is only one who is good. If you want to enter life, obey the commandments. Which ones? The man inquired. Jesus replied, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother and love your neighbor as yourself. All these things I have kept, the young man said. What do I still lack? Jesus answered, if you want to be perfect, go and sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. When the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. Let's pray together. Father, I want to pray that this morning as we encounter this 
topic of emotional health and how it integrates into our spiritual life. God, may you open our hearts, open our minds, help us. We need you to touch us deep inside, pass our logic, pass our knowledge. God, may you bring us to conform to, to your idea of spiritual formation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Friends, when I go teach in China, one of my favorite topics to teach, and I teach in a seminary, usually the seminary course there is a week, and I teach from 8 o'clock to 5 o'clock in the afternoon. It's like eight hours a day. I own these students for a week, basically. Or they own me, one way or the other. And the topic that I will be teaching is exactly this. It's theology of emotion. It's, it's about spiritual health. How does emotional health integrate into your spiritual formation, spiritual life? And I started out by asking them to define sin, to define what sin is. So what exactly is sin? What exactly is sin? So they got break up into groups and they define sin. And these are seminarians, right? Some of them have been pastoring for 10 years, okay, and then come back to get education. And they come up with typical answers. Ten Commandments. And we see the same list that Jesus quotes, right? What can I do to earn to get into eternal life? And he quotes those last six commandments. Friends, I want to draw to your attention to the fact that when the question is asked and the answer that Jesus did not provide was the first four commandments, isn't it? And the first three deals with what? It deals with idol, didn't it? Thou shalt not have any other God. Thou shalt not have create or worship any image. You, you should not have blasphemy. It's about idol, isn't it? Friends, if you and I, we see what is going on by Jesus doing here is that when you and I, we need to realize our sin is more than our behavior. I, I know in our Asian community, there's a huge emphasis on performance. It's the outward performance. We got to do the right thing. We got to go to those right schools. We got to get the right grades. We got to marry the right people. I mean, everything is about the outside. And we forgot what is really underneath. And this is what Jesus was doing. Jesus, when he's speaking to this nice, young, rich person, he's got everything, right? He's got everything. He's rich. He's, he's got morality. He's got all the behaviors. Everything I got, I, I did it. Everything you said. You can measure on the outside, I have it. But what was not uncovered, it was his idol. And that is why Jesus, and I know this is a passage sometimes could be misquoted by people and say, see, that's why we should all give away our possessions. And I think, in fact, Jesus is doing here is that he is gearing up. He's pointing at this young person who has everything on the outside, but there is an idol in his life. And that idol is money, is greed, is possession of goods. And because Jesus confronted him in a very confrontational, very direct way, it, he cannot escape and he goes away. 
And you notice, you notice the words that the Bible picked very carefully to say, that this young man went away sad. He was sad. There was emotion, right? Because he has great wealth. Friends, one thing that if you read carefully about the Bible is that every idol, the deep idols that you and I might have, when it is touched, when it is challenged, when it is violated, when it is being brought to the light of the scriptural truth, guess what? There will be an emotional response. There will be a negative emotion that is attached because you've been relying on this thing. It could be a relationship. It could be your car. It could be your possession. It could be your house. It could be your grade for students. But when things are not going well, how do you feel about that? There will be a negative emotion, just like this rich young ruler. In fact, some of the most dangerous idols are not outright sins, right? This rich young ruler didn't commit murder, didn't do anything bad. But it is an idol inside, deep inside him. Nobody ever challenged Nobody ever looked. That prevents him from a closer relationship with Jesus. Friends, what are some of your idols? What are some of my idols? What kept you really deeper from going to Jesus Christ? There, there was a sexually promiscuous young man, one of my students, became Christian, and he stopped having all those sex, sexual adventures. And he was giving testimonies. He was, I mean, really turned around behavior-wise, right? Wow, everybody was like, great, whoo. So happy for him. But guess what? He comes into a small group. He goes, goes around, and he's trying, trying to take leadership. He's trying to control people. And guess what? There is something else going on here. It's not the behavior or sexual promiscuity. That there, he, he has insecurity. He has deep insecurity. He wants to prove to people. He wants to take control in charge of every and any relationship. There is a deeper idol than the behavior. Another guy became Christian. He stopped swearing. He used to have this foul mouth. I mean, four-letter words. I mean, whatever comes out all the time. Every other sentence, right? He works with um, some of the uh, sanitation people. So the people that he works with, not exactly the great. I mean, that's just a crowd he hangs out with, and it comes out all the time. He became Christian. He no longer swears. But guess what? He criticized everybody. He criticized the worship team. He criticized my sermon. He criticized everything. Friends, there's a critical spirit that was still going on there, right? So our behavior, he stopped swearing. That's nice. But there's a critical spirit that was going on. That, that, that he's not satisfied. That was his idol. Friends, the, the idols are a lot of times not easily discovered. And it can hide behind actually good things. 
if you look at the Ten Commandments, you realize, you realize that God was actually putting some boundaries with some good things. Do, thou shalt not commit adultery. Sex is good. God created so that we can procreate, so we can have intimacy. But he put some boundaries. Friends, sometimes our idols are, are, are really tricky. And unless we put ourselves under a, such a careful examination by the Holy Spirit, by friends and family that, that really cares about you, sometimes through therapy, sometimes very intentionally, we won't, we won't discover it. The second thing, why it's so important that you and I, we have emotional health, is that it redefines spiritual maturity. It redefines spiritual maturity. How many times you go to church, you go to a Christian fellowship, you go to... Maybe this is not what they explicitly teach. Okay? But what you get is this list that you, a spiritually mature person, looks like this. Biblical, theological knowledge. Knows what's going on. Maybe this person's committed. It shows a lot of commitment to an organization, right? To a Christian fellowship, to a local church. There's outward behaviors that matches with the biblical standard, right? This is a picture of spiritual maturity. If that is the case, then you have a spiritual formation process that matches with those goals, right? And that what would it be? To match the goal of biblical theological knowledge, you want biblical memorization, right? You go to seminary to learn more theology. Maybe you save more time to do things at church. Outward behavior, I hate to say this, I hear plenty of times when people just say, hey, whatever you're going through, the sins that you're doing, just tough it up and just do it. Just get better. Just stop doing it. Do the right thing. So that, that's, there we go. Process of spiritual maturity and how you get better. But is that all? If this is a goal and this is the process, your, your path that you're going on, and I know many of you today are tired of this treadmill because it does not get you anywhere. Because your idol still persists, your sin still, you're still struggling with the sin, it still goes on. And you know this doesn't work. So, so what's the alternative? What is there? I want to give you a quote that really changes my understanding of the truth and the way I relate to it and goal of discipleship. This quote is from Dr. Eggman, from the Becoming Who God Intended book. It says, emotions, your feelings... Do not authenticate the truth. But your emotions, your feelings, do authenticate your understanding and integration of the truth. I want you to think through that one more time. Emotions do not authenticate the truth. We understand that, right? doesn't matter if you think or believe or feel like there's a God or not. For Christians, we, believe, we know, objectively speaking, there's God. Okay? So it doesn't matter how you feel. But your feelings authenticate your understanding and integration of truth. 
there's no better illustration than a really cruel one that, I mean, I, I went through myself. I was teaching a student. I, I, I was a youth pastor at one point. One of my students, high school, she, she is just kind of bipolar, goes up and down, very extreme feelings, you know, and she lets you know it. But she was more than that. So I, I, I picked up there's something different. Why? Because every time I would be praying that God the Father loves us, you know, we are embraced by love of God the Father, and every word the Father shows up, she start like shaking. Okay? She grew up in the church. She's been with me. Does she know objectively she's speaking the truth? God is our Father? Absolutely. Do you and I, we know God is our loving Father, right? The Bible says so. Then I told my wife, and my wife talked to her a little bit, and we, we just realized something's really wrong here. And then we talked to her. We, after some counseling and digging, we realized that her mother was divorced, and she has a boyfriend, and this boyfriend is sexually abusing her. She never had a positive father figure ever in her life. And this war father... Every time it's mentioned, gives her shrivels. Instinctually, just, it's bad stuff. Friends, we have a person who understands objective truth. God is a father who's loving. Does her emotions match with her head knowledge? It doesn't, right? That's what it is Dr. Eggman's talking about. How many, how many factual truths that you and I, we understand from the Bible that we have absolutely no emotion that matches? When we say that God is a compassionate God, that the orphan, the widow, that, that he, he, he is angry when they are oppressed, what's our emotion? Do we have emotion that matches with the biblical teaching. Friends, in fact, the goal of discipleship is not just knowing more of those facts, right? Because we can know more facts, but it's not integrated into our hearts. In fact, your emotion is one of the greatest gifts from God. It indicates how deep you have absorbed the objective truth that you already know in your head. It indicates how much, how closer to, to the God, the heart of God that, that, that He has. Because goal of discipleship, in that case, is shift a little bit. It's no longer just knowing biblical knowledge. It's no longer just about committing to a church organization. No longer just transforming the outside behavior. But it is about us experiencing the truth, that the, the, the proposition of God loving us. It's experiencing that love now. And as we said before, as we said before, the goal of discipleship is instead of just looking at stop doing sinful outside behaviors, it's, it's become a process of uncovering idols in our lives. And the best way to unearth those idols is Examining our negative emotions. 
like this rich young ruler. When the idol was confronted, what was his thing? He was sad. He was sad. He was sad. So what does it look like? Instead of just knowing the truth, you experience the truth, right? The spiritual maturity is not just memorization, study of Scripture, but it's an integration of this God that's described in the Bible. It's love, and you experience it, and you can feel it deep down. Instead of you're serving motivated by guilt, shame, and obligation, you, we, we're being talking about serving motivated by vision, desire, experience God. But when I talk about this in China, the pastors are scared. I'll, I'll give you a trade secret, friends. Did you know that if any of the, your spiritual leaders, pastors, one of the easiest ways for me to get you involved in my ministry is by guilting you and shaming you. Right? I mean, I want a fundraising for my ministry in China. I can guilt you so easily. I just show you some picture of orphans I just spoke to. Like hungry people, right? And then, and then add a little guilt. It's like, if you don't give me money, if you don't do this, you're a bad Christian, right? I mean, there we go. But how do you do, I mean, if, if we don't do that, that's not emotionally healthy discipleship. If you grew up under those churches, it's not going to help you then how are you going to be, your pastor should motivate you by vision, desiring, experiencing God. That's why you serve. And in fact, they will probably draw good boundaries for you when you are serving too much. They will stop you. All right? Instead of spiritual formation, spiritual maturity looks like your behavior that, you know, fits a biblical standard, you see the fruit of spirit. Fruit of spirit, the first three. Love, joy, kindness. They are feelings, friends. They're not behaviors. They didn't tell you what to do. Did you have those positive feelings? It looks like, you know, your life just filled with positive emotions. All right, so what does it look like? Philippians 1, verse 9, it says, and this is Paul's prayer. I mean, he planted a bunch of new churches, right? This is like his baby. So he prays for them to become mature. So this is a great spiritual formation prayer. It could be his goal for the church, your goal to become spiritually mature. This is Paul's prayer. That your love and my love will abound more and more in knowledge and in depth of insight. Boy, that's exactly what we're talking about here. Paul didn't say, you know, okay, this translation could have misled people and said, oh, yeah, we should lead more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. That means like seminary training, right? Theology. That means like Bible memorization. No, 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 no. If you look into original Greek, you want to realize that this word love is highlighted that this love will overflow. And so the knowledge and depth of insight, those are modifiers for the word love. Okay? So what Paul is really trying to say here is that you 
are supposed to be if you're truly spiritually mature. That you will experience God's love in variety of ways. In many different contexts. Deeper. I live, I, I have very complicated housing living situation. I don't know if you know. I live with my brother before and his whole family. I live with my mother. I live with my grandma right now. She's 96. Last night I went to a potluck right before I left. She's like, you're not going to spend the dinner time with me? And I'm like, I'm sorry. I got to go. Stop judging me now. <laughs> the point is, you know, my love for my daughter, my love for my wife, my life for my mom, my love for my grandmother, they are different, right? And that's what Paul is talking about here. That your love has a variety and you know all different kinds of love because God is love. You want to experience it in a very deep, profound feeling kind of way. I can sense my grandmother's loneliness. Yes, I can. And sometimes I would just sit next to her and give her a hug and sit for five minutes, ten minutes. But we do our best. Friends, how much time in your discipleship that you are truly trying to expand your understanding of love? To experience it in a deep and profound way. That's what it looks like. That's what Paul is talking about. Verse 10, so that you may be able to discern what is best. All right, that's another thing. Wisdom in decision making. If you're spiritually mature, instead of following a list of rules that your pastors give you or the Bible says, spiritual maturity really entails wise decision making. And, and it's kind of, it's, it's hard to do. It's hard to do. And you might think you know exactly the decision you need to make in your context, in your culture. Just try to go on missions. Then we will test out how wise you are. Just a little different cultural context. Because there's a lot of things that's in the gray area. You don't know what's going on. You don't know what to do. I'm trying to consult churches in China. And... Many of you know they're underground church, the house church, and now they, they are 80, you know, sometimes 100 people, and they're trying to start a precious buildings now. And they can register as a religious organization. So who buys this building? Are you, are you guys going to give, if you guys are going to buy a building, do you guys feel comfortable giving, you know, $1.5 million and transfer directly into Andrew's account? Andrew might like, oh, sure, why not, right? But right now, we have decision-making. Friends, it's, it's gray, right? We got to have wisdom when the context is different. And that's a sign of maturity. Not following a rule book and tells you yes and no, but if you're spiritually mature, it, you have wisdom. And, and this verse 10, it says, follow up, it may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ. Boy, this is so easy in our performance-driven culture. We continue to think pure and blameless. That just means I got to toughen up. I got to do better. 
I got to stop sinning. But the original Greek, again, it d- does not convey any of those feelings. In fact, this word pure is really used in, in terms of value. It, it's talking about back then people doing trades. If you have a gallon of olive oil, the easiest way you can make more money is mix it with some not-so-good oil. and Just mix it together. And this word blameless, it's actually talking about that you examine goods, especially pottery goods, under the sun. So back then, buildings don't have big windows and they don't have interior lighting like this. So it's very dark. If you're selling goods inside a room, you have a crack pot. You're wasting your money, right? Water's going to leak out, whatever. But that's what they do. Okay, so they're saying that you go under the sun, you examine it, and there's no blemishes. It's good. But it is not, this is, both terms are not talking about in your effort and what you can achieve and you can accomplish. Friends, it's associated with this until the day of Christ. What is this really talking about is that it's almost like a wedding day until the day of Christ. By the way, how many of you on your wedding day, you don't recognize your bride. I did not. When Anne walked up the aisle, I was like, you never put on makeup like this before. Who is this person, right? But she is beautiful. Okay? Blameless. Okay? Blameless. This is what the image that that Paul is trying to convey. Okay? In God's eyes, when you and I were walking down the aisle, it's not because of our effort. That we're pure and blameless, right? It's in his eyes. We are wonderful. It's just like the most beautiful thing that you ever seen. Most beautiful thing. That's what spiritual maturity is about. Because, guess what? Verse 11. It's filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. Again, it's the word that comes through Jesus Christ. It didn't say it comes through your own effort. right? It didn't say it comes through your own Enduring. It is in Jesus. But this whole maturity business, it's about you and I experiencing, integrating, feeling God's love in a variety of ways. Because of that, we know how to make wise decisions and in really experiencing the way that God looks at you. Boy, that transformed everything. Because your significance and your value is no longer defined by other people's opinion of you or your own standard. Boy, that is so freeing. If your value and significance, if you really deep look down inside, everything you do, the reason why you go to school, the reason why you're making more money, the reason why you're trying to get the state, if you're liberated just from other people's opinion of you, your own standard, and instead, and by the way, that is just lies we'll talk about later. Instead, you are just focusing on the way God the Father looks at you and what Jesus Christ has done done on the cross, like we're talking about here, that comes through Jesus Christ. Your life will be changed. Your emotional life will be completely changed. That is why, in fact, you and I, we are loved into being wise, pure, and bearing fruit. The love 
experiencing that love is a foundation. It's not just the object, objective of your discipleship is no longer getting, absorbing more knowledge. But it's just the little knowledge you have already about who God the Father, His compassion, His gentleness, His everything, His friendship, His faithfulness. Have you experienced that in your personal life? So how do we get there? How do we get there? Romans chapter 12, verse 2. It says, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Paul says, if you want to be transformed, he gave us a pretty clear path here. Don't conform to the pattern of this world. What are the patterns of this world? There are two huge things that you need to examine. And each of them could be three sermons in itself, okay? The first pattern of the world that you really need to look at is a cultural pattern. Our culture has many assumptions. Our culture has so many assumptions and, and it, that you, we just, we're like fish swimming in water. And if I asked you to describe it, you wouldn't know how to describe it. But it is impacting you all the time. One of the things I just list out, that the culture pattern will be consumerism. And boy, it is such a powerful, powerful thing that's impacting all of us. And consumerism comes in, and with the consumerism, it comes, people want more options. And if you have limited options, you feel like you're less free because it relates to the concept of freedom. So there's a whole writing behind this Christian Smith and there's a whole bunch of sociologists is writing about those issues or Christian Swartz. So, did you realize one day I walk into um, the local tea shop. What do you guys drink milk tea around here? Tea era? Do you guys have that? Okay, whatever. Okay. You go to the local tea, uh, you know, bubble tea place, right? And the guy in front was like, oh, I want my green uh, oolong tea with five pieces of ice, with like unfed milk, shaken not stir, you know? Like, I'm like, um, maybe I should have five pieces of ice too in my tea, right? I mean, maybe my choices of, you know, pearl tea drinking has been like catastrophically naive, right? I mean, maybe my life will be, I mean, only if I make better choices. I mean, do you guys realize how dumb that is? But that's the kind of world we face in, right? I mean, you buy something, you go online, you check forever and do the research for a TV that's like, you know, $1,200, right? How many hours you do, right? I mean, I was just talking to some friends of mine. They were trying to plan... Uh, a trip to, to Europe, and whoa, what a good time to go to Europe, you know. Go book. The pound just went down 30%, right? Oh, whatever, I'll go. They were just talking about that, and their choices. Oh, which hotel should I stay? You know, which, uh, boy, pattern of this world. Do you guys realize that? The people that, the young people in our church, they are trying to plan their wedding. 
And they were thinking about the flowers and the venues that they go to and all that. And I told them, if you spend as many hours on your flowers and venues and the food, whatever, on your premarital counseling, I can almost guarantee you, you have a more satisfying marriage. Just think about this. What, what's the priority, right? What do people spend their money and time on? Patterns of the world. It's just one. I mean, there are, you know, I can give you ten. We can talk about each one an hour, okay? And that we don't even notice and realize it's impacting our choices. And when we don't get what we wanted in our choices, it, negative emotions. We're irritated. We're unsatisfied. It shows that there's some idols going on. The next thing that's huge is family of origin. Family of origin, your family, the family that you grew up in. Despite of your parents, most of the parents want to do the best for their kids. And I'm sure your parents did the best they can in their context. Most of them. But they're not God. And so they're not going to rear you and bring you up perfectly. And even if you think you were raised in a perfect family, well, you were wrong, okay? And I have to say, I grew up, I thought my parents were pretty cool. I mean, in the 80s, you know, we watched Growing Pains and Cosby shows. And I'm like, hey, we're like the Asian Cosby show, you know? My parents give me hugs all the time. How about yours? <laughs> but then we found out my, my dad was having an affair in my college years. I mean, okay, it blew my mind away, right? There's all kinds of things underneath. And your family origin, it actually gives you all these rules that's intrinsic, that's instinctual, that you respond to certain, certain people, you respond to certain circumstances, situations because that's how your family wired you. Okay? If you don't examine those things, guess what? Then you don't even know what you need to conform, that you need to change. So you need to examine the pattern of the world that includes the cultural influences, your family influences, and then transform it to the renewing of your mind. It, this transformation is a hard work. It's really hard work. This renewing of your mind, do you know who you speak to the most every day? Do you know? Who do you talk to the most? Some of you are saying, oh, of course, my dear wife. No, you don't, okay? Maybe your coworker more sometimes, right? But tell you the truth, the person you talk to every day, I know for every single person here, the most is the same person. And it's not God. It's yourself. You wake up this morning, you tell, I was telling myself, what should I wear? Right? What, what's going on? Right? I'm like, wait, did Andrew say I need to wear a tie or not? Oh, no, I need to go check. I'm talking to myself all day long. You are talking to yourself all day long. Do you realize that? Where do you get those self-talk from? Where do you get those self-talk from? Pattern of the world, cultural, and your family. 
I was disciplining my daughter, uh, my wife went to Africa to do a missions trip, you know, helping the orphans in Africa. So it's just me and my daughter. And we have a different relationship when we're just together, just us two. And I, I'm a lot more strict, so she gets no talk, you know, no leniency right there. So I said, you can only have this much for dessert. And she just like, no, but mommy, give me like twice as much. Like, I'm too bad. Sorry. Right? And then she started crying, and she started like bawling. And then all those lies of the Satan, okay, comes up, and she just starts spewing it out. She says, I will never get dessert ever again. I'm like, you, it's right here. Nobody will ever love me. I'm like, what are you talking about, right? Mommy is never going to come back. Lies of the Satan, friends. Did you, did you realize when you were talking to yourself every day and your most faithful listener is yourself, you are spewing all those lies of the Satans to yourself. I am not good enough. Nobody will love me. Nobody will talk to me. Nobody cares about how I feel. I'm just no good for nothing. Okay, again, I can talk this for a whole week, okay? And there are lies of the Satan that just been seeds being implanted inside of you through commercials. Look, if I don't look like these people on the TV, uh, nobody will ever want me. So part of that discipleship now, friends, is to uncover those lies that impact you the most. Because for most of us, there are one or two things that those lies have really entrenched into our lives. And if you want to be a true disciple, transforming disciple, you need to unearth these things, make them, bring them to the open, and counter it with biblical truth. Counter a biblical truth. When the lie says, when my daughter's crying, I will never have more ice cream ever again. The lies, lies, and lies, right? I mean, when you have lies such as, nobody cares about my feeling. And that might be true when in the family that you grew up. Maybe your parents never care about your feeling. They just want you to perform and get the age. But you have a Heavenly Father that do care about your feeling. Your Heavenly Father wants to sit next to you and give you a big hug when you fail. And say, that's okay. That's the biblical truth. For every lie that Satan is tempting you to want to drag you down, there is a truth that is just as powerful, even more powerful than those lies. Because God does want you to live a life that is free, that is full of love, that, that is motivated out of love. This is why that your mind needs to be transformed. All right, so what if you don't have it? If you're not convinced by this point, well, I need to come back for another time, okay? Because if you don't have it, guess what? Your Christian life is just going to be full of rules, trying to accomplish it by your own power, by your own works. You know, there will be hidden idols that you actually struggle with that, that comes up once in a while, when you cannot suppress it any longer, it kind of blows up. There'll be sins unaddressed. 
there'll be wounds unhealed, maybe it's from your past family origin issues. That those lies that's been implanted in your head that you speak to yourself all the time about who you are, your self-perception, is not conformed to the biblical understanding. Because of that, guess what? If you're trying to serve, it's going to be ineffective. Your teaching, your influence is going to be limited. You're going to be serving with the wrong motivation. Maybe the lies are like, and this is very popular in our Asian American culture, obligation. We got to do more, try harder, give more. If we don't do that, it doesn't show that we're committed. We're not loyal. There's all kinds of things that you're speaking to yourself, and you know what? You serve for that wrong motivation, you get burned out because it's not based out of love, gratitude. Friends, I urge you to, to look into this very carefully. Because it, it, you might be driving down Highway 99 and the destination is going to be far, far away from where you want to go. Let's pray together. Father, I know this is a difficult topic for many of our Asian families. We're taught to suppress our feelings, not to share it, not to be open. God, we, we confess we need help. Some of us, we don't even know where to start because when we show any of those things, we, we say that we're weak. People think we're crazy. God, may you give this community, may you grant this community a place to become a place of safety, a safe haven. God, help this church to become a place that they can take each other's idol, but instead of judgment. God, there's a mutual acceptance and encouragement. God, where there is pain, there are lies that we struggle with. God, may you help each of us to, to spend the time, the hard work to unearth these lies, to unearth these idols. And God, we need your insight. We need your courage because a lot of those things that's been in our life for so long, now we just don't have the courage to deal with it. That we can't even see it ourselves. God, empower us. We need you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.